States in Arms and Legion, the Astra Militarum, and countless planetary defense forces, the ever-vigilant Inquisition, and the tech priests of the Adeptus Mechanicus, to name only a few. For all their multitudes, they are barely enough to hold off the ever-present threat from aliens, heretics, mutants, and worse. Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talks Science Fiction, a podcast in which social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the program. It's 30 years since Games Workshop first produced some of its products in its Warhammer 40,000 uh, toy line and game line. Uh, since that time we've had card games, board games, war games, tabletop RPGs, video games, at least two attempts at making a film, none of which were very good, and what I estimate must be more than a hundred novels by now, as well as regular short story anthologies, graphic novels, and comic books. Am I missing out on it? It's all gone over my head. I think they did a bath towel once. No, they had a record label, they had a record label, and Brian May played a guitar song about space marines with guitars. Not joking. So yeah, they even had a record label. And all that, t- so we figured that after 100 novels in 30 years, we should probably talk about 40k. Uh, and as you heard in the introduction, uh, John so massively read out in the, st- <laughs> in, in the style of, of every space marine ever. Um, one of the areas to look at is the Inquisition, because they actually have some interesting things to say. So we decided to do what is widely held as the best of the 40k novels, um, Dan Abnett's Eisenhorn Trilogy. We're getting a laugh from Charlotte because uh, she did not particularly care for this universe. So uh, there's yeah, 97 cool. other not so quite good novels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look forward to reading them. Yeah. Well, I, think, well, I think the the interesting thing about that is we're all coming from fairly different positions on how we stand to the universe, right? I mean, in in terms of you know, this is like especially for teenage boys from the 90s, I guess, uh, maybe less so now. You know, you're, you, it's like asking someone how they relate to Disney, right, or Marvel comics, or, or Harry Potter. Potter, or Harry Potter. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, so you know, I mean, you've said before. I mean, you, you're really into it, right? You know, and and, and considered working for them at some point. I actually got a job interview there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, John, you, you were obviously well into it, probably um, earlier than most. <laughs> yeah, I I got uh, very into the second edition for playing uh, Warhammer 40k uh, but it's just so expensive I've only rented the, the books since then. <laughs> what army did you have? Uh, I had uh, Tyranids and of course Space Marines. Everyone, I, I don't know a single person who doesn't own a single Space Marine who plays this hobby, right? I think this is my big problem with the books is that this is my first introduction to Warhammer and I have no idea what a Space Marine is. I mean, I, I mean, not a dumb place to start is actually the inaccessibility of it for women. Because you were saying the books... Yeah, there was the first issue with the book. In the, the first chapter, the the woman dies. She's a, she's a red shirt. And the next woman introduced, who's pretty much the only other woman, woman introduced in the entire book, pretty much, is a, a pleasure slave. And all the other main characters are male. And I was immediately put off by this because I could just think, well, you know, what's the point? Because it's just going to be another book about how great men are, men saving the world for other men and ruled by men. And I've read enough of those books in the past to not need to read another one to tell me exactly that as a woman I should be listening to men living in a men's world being ruled by men, which is perhaps a bit harsh, but when you've had it all your life, it it does start to grate after a while. Uh, This is an interesting issue with the 40k universe in that it's ostensibly very egalitarian. You can have female inquisitors, you can have female imperial guardsmen, 
You could, I suppose, have a female High Lord of Terror, but you never see them. They, they never turn up, and indeed they used to be female-based factions in Necromunda and 40k and Mordheim and Blood Bowl, and they've all vanished, along with the female Guardsman models and the female Space Marine models and the female Commissar model. I mean, there is this, there is this interesting... I mean, I'm, I'm coming from it somewhere in between, right? I, I, I had the Star Box at some point. I never got hugely into it. To me, it's kind of got that place in my memory in the same as kind of like Saturday morning cartoons and superheroes and all the rest of it, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of... I, I like it for that, right, to some extent, but I'm, I'm, I'm not huge... Like, I don't buy into it in any major way. Um, but, I mean, there is some interesting... An interesting thing about just how homoerotic the whole thing is. In, 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 in the sense of... Kind of... It's kind of absolute obsession with these kind of like hyper masculine figures all the time and I, I was I was reading some stuff about it and I mean there's some there's plenty of room to to really overturn that I mean the, the dark elder are basically <laughs> weirdly sexualized kind of they're, they're, they're BDSM space elves yeah exactly you know and and but at the same you know you're not sure where it comes from because I I, I don't know whether it's something about Dan Abnett's imagination which says you know women are limited in this in this universe. I mean, it's telling that the people that are immune to psychic powers are all women, despite the fact that that doesn't seem to be mm. linked to them in any way. You know, he never mentions all the untouchables are women. It's just that they all are, which is kind of strange. Um, or whether it's just a, a marketing issue, right? You know, is it just that when you're writing books on spec, you write them, you know, just the same as you exclude the female Star Wars figures from the box when you sell them? Right. So I'm, I'm not sure at what level that's coming in. I can well imagine that this hasn't even been thought about. I, I often find yeah. that, that you know, I don't think Dan Abner or any of the other writers have sat down and thought, let's exclude the women. Let's just say that mm. there are women, um, but let's not include them. You just don't think to include them. And then when they do include them, it's as either um, in a sexualized kind of a way. So she's a pleasure servant, pleasure slave, who is very beautiful. Um, or they're totally token. So, you know, there's this amazing character that can do sort of like a Mary Sue kind of character, I suppose. You can do everything. It's always very token. You don't have the everyday women in any of these books, um, not just Warhammer, but just in, actually just in sci-fi and in, in, in the arts much more generally. Um, I think this is just part of a much wider issue. As a woman, I, I feel excluded from these books immediately because I don't see any character that I can relate to. I mean, how many 40k novels have a female protagonist? Two? Demonifuge does and Pariah does. And indeed, Pariah is a spin-off of the Eisenhorn trilogy, so maybe that doesn't count. And the Monofuge is about witchcraft, so I'm not sure that. And even in those in those books, is is the the amount of women fifty fifty, or do you just have the one single protagonist? Well, the Monofuge is set in. There's a faction in Forty K who are basically Catholic battle nuns, who are kind of cool in their own way, but uh, she's one of them. Um, and as a result, there's a lot of female characters. But even then, if you look at, say, the ostensibly integrated things like the Gaunt's Ghosts novels, there's a few female characters. But the top officer echelons who you spend most of your time with are all male. And indeed, like major female characters like Anna Kurth is there for Gaunt to sleep with. But I would say uh, that's kind of a, a legacy issue as much. The, the women are rising up the ranks, but people are not dying fast enough in the, the novels. What are you talking about? God's ghost characters die all the time. Yes, but the, I mean, all, all the, the, the female characters started off as privates, and very few of them managed to get 
Well, senior I mean, levels also. No, yeah. because uh, I need to stay on topic. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no, actually, I'll come back to that. First, first of all, um, you can just artificially add characters in more than on multiple occasions. You can just add factions or groups to both the game and these novels specifically. It, you cannot really make excuses when, say, all the Belladon officers turn off, turn up, and they're still all male. I give you this entirely. I yeah, so, um, my point. And it definitely would be considered unusual, at least in my social circle, for a woman to be into Warhammer. That would be considered unusual. Um, but that's not the case for men. And all, all three of the people, in, of the people mm. in this room have had access to Warhammer in the past. I never had access to it. You do kind of wonder, though, I mean, because... The funny thing is, is just marketing-wise, it makes sense to market to women. This is why. I, this, this is why Marvel have done their great. Yeah, but this is why, right? I mean, you know, as strategic and probably instrumental as it is, it, it, it seems to be a strange thing that you know, from what I remember, the is it Sisters of Battle? Yeah. You know, and all those kind of things just seem to be these kind of minor blips, and mm-hmm. then you know they they seem to disappear. I, I read some interesting essays about it about someone that's gone to a lot of lengths to kind of develop entire pink space marine chapters um, as a way of kind of and, and, and buying women's heads and gluing them onto yeah. the models right? yeah. um, you know so but I mean in terms of the novels themselves you know, we haven't talked about them yet um, but it, you know that, that stuff doesn't seem to be the case and I think it's particularly a pity because from what I understand of all the novels these are the ones that go to at least some length to show us what life in imperial society is like yeah as opposed to taking place on a battlefield where they can tell you how brave the characters are. So, so certainly I think that's, that, that's Abnet's major contribution to the universe, is that for because they're Warhammer, they're always about war, but a surprising amount of time, not just the Inquisition novels, happens away from the battlefield. Hmm. Um, but one of the issues you have with this universe by its nature, because it is quite fascistic and theocratic, you can't have a story about a protagonist who isn't in some way a soldier or a spy or a rule breaker. You can't do a story about the minutiae of living in imperial society. I mean, in some, in some ways it's kind of funny. It's the opposite of Ian Banks' novels, right? I mean, Ian Banks' novels has the problem that everyone's free and perfectly happy. So what do they do? So he has to write novels that sit on the fringe of that society to make them interesting, right? And, and in some ways it's kind of the the opposite problem, whereas, you know, if you live life in a completely totalitarian theocracy, then, again, it has to be a renegade in that case Mm -hmm. for anything interesting to happen at all. Which was probably a problem with women, when you have women not on the battlefield, right? Well, in theory you do, but there are models for them. Very few women on the battlefield. I mean, if you take just general everyday life, women are much more likely to be at home at schools, they're not likely to be in these kind of exciting positions, or not normally anyway. Well, I mean, we, we never see homes and schools, right? Yeah, well, they mean, must exist. They yeah. must exist, but the only place we've seen any great depth really is Cadia, and Cadia doesn't, right? Because Cadia's all about guns and nothing else. So wouldn't it be interesting to write a, a novel about living, trying to live an ordinary life in a sort of fascist... The funny thing is, I think that would be more interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. there was... So Status Dead Zone was a short story set in set on Necromunda. And there is very about the urban underclass, and so it's about racism, or it's about being a mutant, or it's about the fact that rich people come down and hunt you for sport. Um, but, you know, the Necromunda fell by the wayside, so that's our friend. Yeah, I mean, it's... 
it, it's a funny thing where actually, because the thing is, I mean, it, it clearly isn't the case that there's only so many novels you can write about this, right? Because yeah. someone's turning I've, out novels which presumably have the same battlefield scenes, you know, in a kind of dramatic irony, you know, repeat the scale of the supposed conflict just in terms of the number of books that have been I must have read more than 20 Dan Abnett novels. And I think the only author of novels I read more of is probably Terry Pratchett. Yeah. So there's no shortage of material. It's not like he hasn't had time to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of the novels themselves, I mean, effectively it's some kind of adventure slash noir story, right? That takes tropes from everywhere else. And basically the plot is that because he's a member of the Inquisition, he fights against chaos. And to fight chaos, you need to know about chaos. And when you know about chaos, you become corrupted by chaos, yeah. right? And that's basically the arc, right? Mm. So, I mean, I mean, you could see that coming right from the beginning, right? I mean, you know, it, it doesn't deviate from the formula in that sense. I mean, do you think that's a, an interesting offering, just in terms of, like, the kind of, the kind of themes of the novel? I mean, we have, do you think that's bringing something new to the table? Because, I mean, that's the Warhammer setup, right, isn't it? It's order versus chaos. Yes, but there is an element of how even positive virtues lead to chaos, because what, what's the, the name of the elderly inquisitor? Voke. Commodus yeah, Voke. Commodus Voke. Because he, ba- he basically refuses to engage with chaos at all. If anything's even potentially chaotic, he creates a wide circle and kills everything within it. He does not learn about chaos. He just, in many ways, commits very bad crimes to prevent anything from happening. Whereas the the compassion which Eisenhorn shows in trying to be selective and not create huge amounts of collateral damage leads him to, you know, understand chaos and become because of his not wanting to essentially destroy whole planets to kill one person. So, I mean, Eisenhorn is opposed as often by agents of order than he is by the arch enemy of chaos. Um, people like Voke or Tantalid are very much in fair order and anti-psyker and we, we must do this. So I don't think necessarily you can pitch this as order versus chaos. The question is then raised, is, the, is our ending for this that Eisenhorn was weak? And that the better thing to do would not be to be tempted by this evil demonic book and actually just a nuke it all from orbit. Well, on the one hand, from the perspective of falling to chaos, uh, as portrayed here, maybe so. But even the Imperium has only a certain number of planets you can blow up before there's only spaceships left. I mean, it is interesting how, so this is effectively a religious story, right? Mm. And, and so the chaos thing is, is considered as heresy, right? And the interesting thing about that is, okay, there's this kind of emperor in the middle of it who's in some chamber somewhere. He's probably dead, right, or whatever. No one really knows. On right? So he's this kind of, like, empty void at the, at the centre of it. I mean, the interesting thing is... It's effectively taken the kind of religious, holy war type stereotype to an extreme just in terms of the institutional structure, right? It hasn't 
done anything to do with the actual religious worldview, what they believe is good, what they believe is bad, and everything else. All they believe in is authority, right? And then and then juxtaposes that against some kind of metaphysical principle. <laughs> so I mean, in in some ways, it's weird because you have the church, but you don't have belief. Right? You just have belief in the institutional structure, yeah. not in the relationship between good and evil, because good and evil don't exist in this. I mean, that's made fairly clear. I can't help but think the parallels between what you just said and 1984, mm-hmm. because Big Brother doesn't exist, right, as, yeah. a, as a character. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of what you've just said is, is basically the plot line to 1984. Yeah. yeah. The belief in the institution and in the structure rather than a belief in a god or, or even an ideology most of the time. People don't seek to wield power because they think it is a necessary evil to achieve a good end. They wield power because it's in their nature to seek power. Mm-hmm. And then to keep it by whatever means. But, but but isn't Eisenhorn's position that that's not true? That there are these big, horrible things out there and he do needs to give someone the authority he has. Yeah. I mean, that's his personal position, right? That it is fine for him to have all this power and all these institutions to have power because you do need them. The question is, is that true, right? Is our conclusion at the end of this, it was right to vest all that power in Eisenhorn? Even how many inquisitors he has to kill, I'm not sure that's true. Well, I don't know about the power in Eisenhower. I mean, I'm not sure how much of it hinges on him being a kind of pseudo-sympathetic character or not, right? I mean, it's obvious you're supposed to be rooting for him as the kind of, I mean, maybe not a halfway point, but someone who's willing to look chaos in the face and say, look, I understand it, rather than burn it with fire or whatever. But I, I, I think it's part of a deeper ambiguity in the whole Warhammer thing because they set it up as the Imperium or Order versus Chaos but people naturally, well maybe not naturally but people map on good versus evil right? and those aren't necessarily the same thing but sometimes the book wants you to think that it is I mean certainly so I wouldn't say that the, the universe maps itself is good. I'd say that the universe maps itself is heroic. Yeah. But it is not sophisticated enough to deliberately draw a line between good and heroic. Yeah. You can do that in fiction. You, you can say, Absolutely. point at a heroic... Like, Starship Troopers would be a good example. You can point at military heroism and then say, well, look, you're actually fighting for an evil cause. And while I think the Imperium is bad and that its warriors are good, I don't think it deliberately draws that line. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think like a lot of the things in this book, actually, it kind of introduces those themes, but then isn't narratively complex enough or written in a sophisticated enough way to be able to get anything out of that, right? You know, he, he drops in all these things. I mean, there is some interesting stuff here, right? Like the the need to know chaos and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, by the end of the book, probably the most powerful character um Ravana is saying openly, look, the institutional structure is set out in the right way and it's a good thing that we're beyond that because it allows us to do what we need to do or whatever. You know, there's some interesting questions there, right? Um, But at the same time, I don't think it follows through on them in any reasonable way apart from you can just say, oh, look, Eisenhorn's a morally great character. Everyone loves morally great characters now because, you know, we've had... Scandinavian TV series or whatever, and and, and, and and we can all get on with it. I mean, well, it, it is interesting that this was written before 9-11 as well. And the idea of perpetual war and constant suspicion, right? Yeah. I mean, 
I'm, I'm surprised it was, actually. I think there's parts of it which maybe read a little bit differently after the Patriot Act. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, precisely because we can't refer to the historical inquisition in the same way. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, surely you can just draw parallels with McCarthyism, right? Yeah, I guess so. And you replace communism with chaos, and, and you could rewrite McCarthy into 40K, in the same way that people rewrote McCarthy's speeches into X-Men, replacing communism with mutant. Yeah, I mean, maybe McCarthy was just a great source of genre fiction. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, all his flaws. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think... I mean, the other thing the book does quite a lot is the book's written from first-person perspective. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you much about what he's thinking, and he keeps doing stuff that he's not telling you. So it's kind of written in this weird way where it's like, oh, it's in a first-person perspective, so you're privy to Eisenhorn's thoughts, except not, because every time you need a plot twist, it's something that he hasn't told you about yet. Yeah, it's written as a memoir. Uh, and, and as the historian the room, historians in the room will say, memoirs are a terrible form of history. <laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> but they can be very useful in some, sometimes, but they show you what the person thought they were doing, or what the person would like you to think that they were doing. Which obviously is very different to what the person actually did, but it, they can be very useful in trying to work out why someone acted in the way that they acted, or why someone reacted to somebody in the way that they did. So a memoir is a bad form of history if you're sort of after the truth, but then when you get into what is the truth, it can become quite useful. I mean, you were saying that it set up an unreliable narrator thing and then didn't go anywhere with it. I, I don't think it portrayed it. I mean, John and I were talking about this the other day. That there may be something in there which says, well the reason you're getting a kind of sterilised picture of Eisenhorn is because Eisenhorn's writing it, Eisenhorn's doesn't realise that he's falling to chaos and all this other kind of stuff. Um, I'm not sure that holds up, just because I'm not sure the narrative is well done enough to sustain it. Um, I mean, in terms of... I mean, th th there's some interesting bits, for instance, the... A lot of this trilogy is spent hunting down bad books, right? Mm -hmm. And then throwing them into the corpses of burning space marines to destroy them forever, or whatever, you know, whatever the most metal thing that Dan had to think of. Um, and, and, and <laughs> so it's a 10,000 year old genetically modified battle warrior, I'm going to chop his head off, set him on fire, and throw his diary right. inside. And I mean, there's, you know, and, and there's an interesting thing, because in the first one, he touches the book and he's a bit of a psychic because, you know, he's, he's awesome or whatever. And, and he has trouble holding the book because it makes him cold, right? Or whatever. And, you know, this book is in itself, it's basically the, the book from the evil dead, the Necronomicon or whatever. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of, he hears the voices and all that kind of stuff when he picks it up. And then when he picks up basically the same book, but worse, in the third one, he doesn't, after he's destroyed that, he, he, he gets a, a copy of a different book, which is the worst book ever, right? And then he touches that and, and reads it and everything else, and he doesn't notice anything. Right. And there's some interesting stuff there, right? He, he, he is said, it that he is already over the line, which is the way the book constantly puts it, or is it just that the book's a book? Like, you know, it all, like, the, the book's not evil. Uh, the book's not evil. It, it, it's, it's your own obsessions that yeah. kind of bring that out. This is brought up in, I think, what, I mean, of all the 40k stuff that's been written um, about the nature of knowledge. Because there, there, there are characters who argue that, that the seeking of forbidden knowledge itself is, is evil. And there's a character who isn't evil, he's just worked it out. It's like, ah, oh, a demon must have told her, he must have read it in a forbidden term. It's like, no, no, he just, he just did it from first principles. Right. And that can't be viewed as evil. Yeah, I mean, there's, 
I think there is some interesting stuff there in terms of what education is. Um, well, we never see imperial school, right? We do. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's 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 a bit like Gene. They have the kind of um, mentat type characters, mm. or like um, or ciphers, or you know, human computers, effectively. You know, and they effectively just memorize everything, right? Um, and it's a, I mean, it's an interesting problem. The funny thing is, I think. The, at least for me, as someone that has read a fair bit about the, the Spanish Inquisition and so on, I mean, that, that was actually a, a moderately interesting part of the book because it gave some rationale for just how people thought that that was how you dealt with that stuff. Yeah. Right? Book burnings and, and all the rest of it. I mean... Except this is, this is the thing, though, because it then portrays that as heroic, because it's okay to be a torturer and a book burner when the person you're torturing is a demon and the book you're burning is evil. But that's not the case with the actual Inquisition, and so I'm not sure you can transfer the tropes across. Hmm. Because in the real world, so we have this Inquisitor, or, or this witch hunter, who's running around hunting down what in the book is portrayed as people who have sex with aliens. But in our world, it was women who had funny cats and Jews. So... I'm not sure you can transfer them across and make me your hero. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think it's like I said. I don't think it does a good job of it. But I think it was it was one of the points at which the book kind of got to some more interesting themes. Mm. Um, well, I mean, most of his enemies, most of the books are other inquisitors, right? Yeah. I mean, do you actually want to write a book? Do, do, would this charity have been better if it was from the point of view of a non-inquisitor? I think if it was from the point of view of anyone else. Like, I mean, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from the point of view of Beckwin, because the, the, there's, there's a planned trilogy from her point of view, except she dies at the end of... Spoiler. She dies during the third Eisenhorn book. So. I thought it was her daughter or her clone. It's a clone or something? Yeah. But I don't know. I think maybe the Inquisitor turning up and recruiting Beckwin and discovering the universe from her point of view could be more interesting than I'm a sexy guy with green gun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think... The thing is... Everything in this kind of thing is always going to be overdetermined, right? Yeah. So, you know, if it's not overwritten by the fact that the galaxy or the universe or whatever is always at war, it's overwritten by the fact that it's an adventure novel and it's a highly masculinized character, right? You know, so, you know, that's kind of the point at which it kind of tips over. And so it's always, I don't know, it's too constrained by genre. Like, and, and, and I don't say that as someone that didn't enjoy the novels. I did enjoy the novels. Right. But in terms of having anything interesting to say, uh, in, in terms of any subtlety whatsoever, I, 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 I think it just kind of fell on its face about 50 pages into the second book. Whereabouts in the second book do you think it fell up? Because to me, the three books are split into Xenos is about how great the Inquisition is. The second book's about how much the Inquisition fights with itself. And the third book's about how terrible this entire idea was all along. Because he, in the, th- the third book is him using the power and connections that were wielded against him in the second book to escape from a bad guy. Uh, and then, of course, he goes off with his demon host, having revealed that he had a second love interest all along. Right? Yeah. I, I, I mean, maybe just the... I mean, I guess, I mean, the Ravenna trilogy is more about how... So the Ravana, the Ravana trilogy, which follows on from this, is about drug addiction, right? Is it? Yeah, basically. There's, there's a bunch of chaos-infused bits of glass, which are being sold all over the galaxy, and people keep looking into them and getting psychic powers. I mean, at least there's something there, right? But I think 
I, I, I divided the, the book up into those three ideas. No way you thought the second one fell apart. Well, I think... So, I haven't read them before, right? And I think, not knowing what to expect, I, I read the first one, Find Superhero Story, like, you know, that he's got a dark past away, you know, whatever. And, and, and then you kind of read the second one, and I wasn't sure whether they were going to be new adventures or whether the trilogy was a whole thing. And I think at the point at which I realised it was all going to be about the same bad guys and about the same kind of ideas and everything else, I mean, it was basically in it from the start that Pontius Law was going to be the big bad at the end. There was astoundingly, blindingly obvious ever since the, like... He's not his name. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> Pontius Law, he used to be the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. Call him Dave. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and so... Because it sticks so close to the tropes, it was kind of obvious what was going to happen right from the start. I've just got this picture in my head now of um, somebody holding forth the Pontius and going, there are some who call it Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, about, about 50 pages into this edition, it's where the, the victory parade all descends into violence and chaos, right? Yeah. Um, which I suppose is the point at which, because we have about 50 pages of, of inquisitorial intrigue, and then a lot of explosions and flamethrowers and psychics. So I, I, I got the omnibus version, right, which is just short 600 pages long. And I think if, if he got rid of, not even get rid of, I'm not even going to stand up to get rid of the fight scenes, right? But if he got rid of 200 pages of the fight scenes, right, <laughs> I, I think I can handle one-sixth fight scene. So if there was a fight scene one every, once every six pages, rather than... It was clear, <laughs> where I was just reading just the dialogue for that exact reason. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, because... Dan, if, you listen, quite, but, Dan, if you listen to this, we, we, we do like your novels, and please finish the Beckwin trilogy. But, I mean, and then demand to write as many Horace Heresy novels as possible. Oh, and do a follow-up to Fiefdom, that one was quite good. I'm yeah. Gaunt's ghosts, always. <laughs> uh, yeah. Actually, no, I think I'm done. I'm ready for Gaunt to die. A few years ago that would have upset me, but I'm fine with it now, Dan. <laughs> I mean, I think... By, I, John I, is now giving me the finger for suggesting they kill off Abraham Gaunt. But, I mean, but it's, it's telling... I mean, it's telling that we, we kind of keep sliding off topic, right, in some ways, that as far as these novels go, I honestly don't think there's a lot to say. Charlotte didn't manage to finish them, right? <laughs> I had to give up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I think it's held back by the need to be genre fiction. I think yeah. that's my... Uh, I mean, would, would, would so, to so me, if you transplant this story into a non-40k universe, there's not much there because the interesting parts of the story are the bits that examine... The 40k universe. Yeah, and, and, and I enjoyed it to the extent. Sorry, Charlotte. No, sorry, Kate, I, I, I enjoyed it to the extent that I enjoyed spending a couple of days splashing around in the 40k universe again, which is something I haven't done since I was a kid, right? Yeah. You know, so I mean, you know, maybe I mean maybe this moves us on now to kind of things about about that universe. Um, but I, I I think again. I know, I know I'm being one of the harsher critics, but I, I, I'd also emphasise that I, I mean I did enjoy it. Right? Um, you know whether I think there's anything particularly interesting to say about it. Isn't that telling though that you're like okay it doesn't have much to say anything about sci-fi, but you know with hindsight it was a fun read. I've got nothing against fun reads. Yeah, but you'd already say that you hate heroes, happy endings. 
No, I, I hate it. <laughs> yes. Was the ending depressing enough for you, Alex? <laughs> well, no. Everyone he knows and loves dies. No, it's, it's not even like... It's not even <laughs> and like his best friend is now a demon. No, actually, I thought the ending was terrible. his legs terrible. are broken. I thought the ending was terrible in here, too. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You're impossible to bleed. Because, <laughs> no, the thing is, it's not like I've got anything against happy endings. I've got... I've got something against endings that could be predicted from the third page. Right? Like, <laughs> as soon as he set up as the inquisitor stereotype that he is, the ending is blindingly obvious. And and it follows through on that. And I think that that was the extent to which are you looking up to see what's on the third page? Yeah. I think he kills a guy. No, he's not even in the first <laughs> twelve pages of this edition. So you're a filthy liar. <laughs> but uh, you know, so Possible to please. Um, I, 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 Nothing's I, ever been the same no, since he wrote Hyperion. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it. We'll do an episode on it at some point. Um, but I, I want it to be. I just want something to be a, a little bit of a twist on the formula. Also, so. also I, the villain of the trilogy isn't isn't Pontius Law. It's Cherubale. Yeah, and they fly away in their kind of homoerotic kind of. I know. Oh, there's order and there's chaos, but maybe if we meet in the middle. I don't think that's the that's ending. morally grey works. Like, I, don't, I, I do not think that Cherubel and Asmodeus are gay for each other. I think he's both of them. I bet there's fan fiction online about that. I didn't say that. I said that explicit the middle, fan the, fiction is bound to exist. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 I think I think it runs on this kind of moral on this kind of moral continuum idea that says. Look, everything's really morally grey without actually examining what that means. That's correct. Um, and and so that that's why it's unsatisfying to me. Um, I, I think. I mean, this is probably a good point to jump over and talk about the extent to which the forty k universe is a fanfic universe. That was my entire problem with the book. Well, I didn't even know it was because you're not Warhammer. initiated, right? I had right. no idea about Warhammer. Well, I I know of Warhammer. I know Warhammer exists. I know it's sort of like a nineties PC game. But when I picked up the book, because the copy that I had didn't have, well, it did have Warhammer actually, it, but it wasn't obvious to me that I, I literally read the first few chapters and was just like, what on earth is this? To, to be fair to you, I had that same problem with Dan Abnett's fiefdom, because I read the first half of the book without realising the protagonist was a dog. They're <laughs> 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 like, oh my god, what? Um, but no, I mean, so this is based on a tabletop war game slash RPG initially, but mostly the tabletop war game. And, and so it's the, not on the PC? It's not a PC Well, there, game. there are PC games, and the first that they've been made, but the, the core of the hobby is the tabletop war game. And inherently, war games and RPGs are, are not, here is a story, read it and be interested. It is, here is a story, make it your own. It is your army, it is your paint scheme, you name your characters, and you move them around the tabletop, and when they die, you're sad, and when they win, you're happy. And so inherently, if you're basing, and this is true of Dungeons and Dragons as well, if you're basing a setting on an interactive game medium, it's going to be fanfic, because that's what the universe is. It is about the consumer controlling the world. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it also means that any of this kind of, when something gets elevated, so, you know, it gets published in the Black Library or, you know, whatever gets published by Games Workshop, um, it also means that things are going to be inherently conservative in some ways. Now, I mean, Dan Abner is... Has been able to shape the universe quite a bit. Has, has, has been in that position, right? Yeah. You know, the same as R.A. Salvatore does with Dungeons & Dragons, the same with, I don't know, other people. 
But uh, you know, Stanley with Marvel would be the other great example. Yeah, but I, th- I, th- I think there's only ever going to be a few people that manage to do that, right? You know, a lot of it is going to be fairly rote and 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 fairly kind of. It, 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 it's going to it's going to cleave to a certain kind of design trend, right? You know, Games Workshop have given Dan Abnett license within certain grounds and within a certain setting and everything else to write this book. And by the way, you know that is about you know they've said well you know we've got this game launching it's called Inquisitor, you know oh I know this was done retrospectively yeah. but you know you know it would be great if you could write some novels in that universe you know and, and whatever right so it, it's always going to be predetermined. Some extent. I mean, I don't know. And as, as, as someone that's probably less initiated into that kind of thing than, say, you are or, or, or John is, I mean, you know, I think it's inevitable that, you know, and Charlotte even more than me, that, you know, we're probably going to have less time for that. But that said, I mean, obviously there's things that I'm into that I've probably got more tolerance for. Eve Online. Yeah. <laughs> when I was reading it, like, years I struggled with it massively just because. I didn't enjoy it because I didn't know what it was talking about a lot of the time, and perhaps I didn't have enough patience to understand it, to be quite honest. But I did, I did feel that actually, if I was into this this universe, I would enjoy it. And I, I went onto um, the internet and read reviews, and a lot of people who are into the universe did enjoy it. So I can totally understand why people enjoy it. Mm. Um, and I think you have this whole issue with with fan fiction or like style of fan fiction, that some sort of a reverse snobbery issue that exists. You know, this this book is not equivalent to you know Charles Dickens's works or Tolstoy's work, but actually a lot of people really enjoy it, and I think it's great for that. Well, I mean, the comparison you made before we turned on the mic is that reading a forty k novel as non forty k player is a bit like all those non Harry Potter fans who went to see Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Yeah. If you're not already into the universe, it's gonna do nothing for you. Absolutely nothing. I mean, you can sit through it for an hour and a half. Because you know your friends outvoted you at the cinema, but you're really not going to be that into it. You're not going to understand all the subtle little clues and all that. So you might get the overall sort of vague plot line, but all the little things aren't going to interest you. So I mean, when he meet in the first novel, when he meets the space marine librarian, did you think that that guy was actually a librarian? I assume so. That's why I picked on that. I was like, well, actually, no, they're not actually librarians. They're magic robot. Arm and battle suits like a guys. Yeah, the, difference, the difference is how self-aware companies are of this, right? Yeah. Because I mean, the point is, at least I didn't read the book, but the film of Fantastic Beasts and West Spider was a perfectly good adventure film and was very profitable, right? And and was immensely profitable, right? But there's another side to this kind of culture which has an interest in setting up those walls, right? For you know, it's a it's a it's a cred check, right? You know, oh, you know, ha ha ha! You don't even know what a space marine is, like you know, maybe they're like I don't know other marines. It's, it's a marine space, uh, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, but this but this is the thing, right? So you know, this is why there's absurd kind of faux Latin throughout the entire thing, right? And you know, the funny thing is, despite the fact that he hideously over describes just about everything to do with weapons, right? He never gives a basic description of what the Imperial Guard. Are. Right. So, you know, he's, he's, he's taking so much for granted, despite the fact that at every other level, it's, it's, it's written in a, in a very kind of, it, it's very readable. Right. But it's only, it, you know, the actual language, you know, he said, she said type stuff, you know, is immensely readable. But the fact that that's then followed by some obscure Latin phrase, right, is, is just the identity marker. 
So, I mean, I don't know whether this is a problem elsewhere, but I guess so. It's just a generically... I mean, that's just true for me of fantasy and sci-fi. So we made the joke in the China Melville one that you can't do a China Melville podcast without making up a word. Yeah. You good for not. Yeah. I think this sort of thing can put people off sci-fi, though, because I know when, oh, I, talk, when I talk to people and say, oh, you know, I don't like sci-fi, when I tell them about this podcast, and the amount of different books that we've done on this podcast, even just I've done on this podcast, and then what you guys have done when I've not been here, is, is immense. But I think when a lot of people think of sci-fi, they think of books like this, and think of this sort of incomprehensible world. And I, this book isn't designed for me to read, so mm. I'm not going to criticise not being able to understand it because I'm not the target audience. But I think perhaps sci-fi itself has maybe a bit of a, um, an image problem that... It's, it, a lot of people think it's books like this when actually it's 1984 so, it's for the world it's okay so the question becomes why aren't there popular, popular computer and tabletop war games of 1984 Embassy Town and War of the Worlds I mean H.G. Wells was into war gaming he, he wrote one of the first books of war gaming I, I, yeah I mean it's I mean is it because um, War of the Worlds is inherently about the futility of effort when you're mankind and you would die. So the, the yeah. War of the Worlds war game would be one side gets 100 humans and the other side gets a Martian and then the Martian wins. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's... I don't think, I honestly don't think it's a problem intrinsic to sci-fi. I think just about every Ian Banks novel does a fair job of describing what the culture is and what it's about, for instance, right? I mean, I think it's maybe a, a, a kind of, inverted commas, subcultural issue, right? The fact that people do build this up, right? You know, if you like Star Trek, then you have to be a Trekkie. Well, no, I mean, sometimes, you know, you can just like Star Trek. And, and let, let's not pretend that the a lot of the 40k fandom isn't actively hostile to outsiders, no, especially actually, women. Yeah. And go, go read some articles on them. They can be female space marines, because then I'd have to rethink my life. Yeah, yeah <laughs> but I mean, but that's the... But the, the other thing is, I mean, the companies that are making this stuff have an interest in that. Mm. Right, they have an interesting cultivating a particular fan base. So, I mean, I don't think we're talking about science fiction or... You know, I, don't, I don't even necessarily think we're talking about Warhammer. I think what we're talking about is the development of subcultural identity around a particular product. Right? And, you know, I think that that's true for Harry Potter. I think it's true for Fifty Shades of Grey, right? You know, which was also you shudder at the mention of Fifty Shades that, of Grey. You know, but that was. Do you realise that, that it's 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 overly descriptive escapism, which is badly written, aimed at women. Whereas this is overly descriptive escapism, badly written, aimed at men. But I mean, it's, but it's also heavily marketed, right? Yeah. You know, and, and and so you know, maybe there's something in this thing of you know, geek culture being kind of at least self-perceiving as a minority kind of thing. Um, not that that's necessarily true, but I mean, you know, there's this kind of natural defensiveness about it, right? It can be quite elitist at times. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I imagine, I imagine worse. Uh, well, just as much happens on the on the Harry Potter fan forums as as anywhere else, right? And I mean, determining which fandoms become elitist is very hard to predict, given that My Little Pony is currently one of the worst internet fandoms, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's and that's deeply perplexing because there's nothing about My Little Pony is about a bunch of female ponies in bright colours. It's not about manly men with guns and spaceships. So yeah, I mean, it it it, it depends. I I don't know. I mean, I think the it it gives rise to interesting things and it can develop around anything, right? But I mean, I I think that there is a distinction perhaps between 
in kind of fandom type things or you know fan movements that are based on companies that are actively cultivating that for money and those that aren't. Um, you know, this is one of the former. So I think it, 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 it's going to... Having just come back from Warhammer World where they sell you pin badges, t-shirts, mugs with your favourite Blood Bowl team on it, um, five different in-character beers um, from, from the universes. You, you can buy the drinks your characters <laughs> drink. Although, uh, Buckman 6X in the game is infinite and never runs out, but when you buy a bottle of it, it's not. Oh. I know, right? <laughs> they can be both, though, right? Because Harry Potter started as the other one and then grew into more like Warhammer. Yeah. It just started it just started as books. And actually, interestingly, I found that it's after the last book was published that a lot of the merchandise, the theme yeah. parks, almost to keep to get people to keep on spending the money. So it, the original seven books was never designed yeah. to be like this. And it's the the fandom I mean the fandom definitely existed during books, which might have something to do with the, the thing that the last book came out in 2007, which is when sort of Facebook and social media is really, really taking off. Okay. So there might be something in that as well. But Harry Potter, the phenomenon, is a film phenomenon. I mean, look at the, the merchandise is not merchandise of the books, it's merchandise of the films. The most telling thing of this is what colour is Ravenclaw. Yeah. And so it's like, well, the Harry Potter Lego, the video game, what? The, the game of the toy of the film of the book. I really like that. <laughs> you really enjoyed the game of the toy of the film of the book. Yeah. Do you have a poster of the game of the toy of the film? It is a fun game. It's a fun game. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, we've obviously drifted around and about. <laughs> but that's always going to be the case because we were picking. We picked three novels because we wanted to talk about forty k. Yeah. Um, I mean, as as someone that, if I can say that, I mean, as someone that's quite into, what is it that you? Do you, do you enjoy it because it you've always enjoyed it and you kind of carry on in that vein? Or is there something about it that really appeals to you? Or is it just the kind of need to smash stuff together? And... Well, I've never been super into the... I mean, Flavin Gorkamorka, which is basically comedy Mad Max, um, smashing things into each other isn't actually that super fun. And the fact that over the of more, more recent years I've gravitated towards the smaller scale skirmish games where all the characters have names and personalities and, and, and sometimes are scared of things mechanically and I've, I've gravitated away from hey you can buy this huge tank for like £125 it's like well I've not bought a huge tank for £125 if I've made one I've made it out of like plastic art because that's the modelling challenge I enjoy so I guess it's interesting that I've gravitated towards the human side of it the necromunda systems as opposed to the, you know, I'd like to buy a Thunderhawk gunship for £400, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same. Um, Do you like smashing things together? No, I mean, I pretty early on realised I was far more into the fluff than the crunch, as in I like the stories about Warhammer a lot more than I like the game of Warhammer. But I don't know it's like the Warhammer world, because this is only one of the many big space opera worlds in series of 20 or 30 books, which I have fallen afoul of and litter my shelves. Uh, you have a problem, house at home. <laughs> Yes, I have a problem with space opera. I mean, Not even once. The thing is, if you want to talk about interesting things in the 40k universe, you're mostly looking at plot. Because I can only think of one or two areas where the mechanics of a game have proved interesting 
from a thinking point of view. Mm. So in Necromunda, the fact that there's a faction which is the rich hunting the poor, and the rules feel dreadfully unfair because they get robot battle suits and laser guns and, and you have a stick, um, has something. And also there's the bit where playing as the downtrodden slave casting Gorkamorka is interesting because you start using terrorist tactics for lack of anything better to do. But, yeah. I think I gravitated towards the small rather than the big exciting explosion. Is that the Trotskyist gremlins? The, yeah, the 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 Trotskyist goblins are amazing. Right down to they have a leader called the Red Goblin, who uh, his stats are randomised every single game because he keeps getting assassinated and replaced with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that should do us. Uh, we yeah. actually rambled on for quite some time, so. Uh, well, we're sorry. That'll be sorry, guys. That'll be for fan fiction. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Well. Uh, okay. We'll see you next, see you next month, month for whatever it is we do. All right. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.